I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Amy Wright Glenn. She's the author of Holding Space. And in this, she has a mission to teach us on how to hold space for love, death, and how to let go of it all. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Well, first of all, I really do appreciate you taking the time out and spending this with me. I've read your book, Holding Spaces, recently and have fallen in love with the tagline on loving, dying, and letting go. And I believe those three phases are such a, could be short phases, could be long phases based on who you are and your life experiences. So it's really cool to have you sitting here talking about your new work. Um, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kimberly. I'm so grateful for your gifts in this world and your willingness to connect. And thank you for taking the time to read Holding Space. Yeah, ditto, ditto. I, You know, when you meet some people, and <clears throat> it's interesting because through this podcast, I feel like I've been talking to old friends for, and I, I feel like I've known people for many, many years, and I've never met the majority of my podcast guests face to face. And so I feel a connection with you through our friends in Asheville, North Carolina, and I was so glad to connect with you and to be exposed to your wonderful work. So I, I also appreciate you. So tell me, I'm, I'm really curious of the significance of your book title because it does hold uh, a significant relevance when you talk about holding space. So what does it mean to you, um, holding space? It's a really good question because it's, it's kind of like asking someone, what does it mean to love? <laughs> it's a really big question. For me, holding space is a, it's a term. I didn't come up with it. I, I first encountered it through the work of Heather Plett in Canada. Means to hold space with regard to the death of her mother and how the palliative care nurse held space for Heather and her sister as her mother died. And, and, and I really loved how she described what it means what does it mean to hold space in eight ways to do it well and if I were to repeat those eight things I think they really do boil down to what it means to extend compassion to extend a form of love that says I see the full human complexity in front of me this full package of the of the, of, um, of loss and grief and hope and love and I'm willing to sit with all of it as much as I can Right? And that's why I write in my book, we can only hold space for others to the extent we can hold space for our own unique and complex selves. So I think of holding space, it's a term I use to describe an approach to relationship that can be done within um, a family system or a friendship system, but also within the caretaking model of perhaps you know, doulas, nurses, doctors. But it's an approach to relationship that says, I'm listening I'm present, I'm aware of um, what you're, sh you're sharing with me, and I am willing to sit with whatever shows up to the best of my capacity, to the best of my courage, and accept this moment as it is with compassion. Holy cow. I, you've said so much, and I was moved by so many things you just said. First of all, that just stuck with me was 
you, you've got to have compassion and hold space for yourself before you do it for others. And, and I seem to find that relevant in a lot of different areas, whether it's love, loss, or even, even letting go of certain things, is that you've got to have compassion when it comes to you, um, yourself, and I, before you can be totally present for someone else. Have you finding that relevant in other areas of your life as well? Yes, very much so. I, I wrote this book during a very hard time in my life, personally. I went through a difficult divorce during the course of writing this book, and I wrote Holding Space over the course of 17 months. So I did my best to reflect on the stories that I write about, you know, the death of children or parents or the the healing that comes through accepting all aspects of our own being or the love that I feel in the garden I feel in the garden with my son when we garden together. I I tried to write about vignettes in my own story as a doula, as a mom, as a you know, as a daughter and and as I'm writing all of this, you know, one of the most significant relationships in my life is is changing. And so mm-hmm. To to ask to ask me did this does the work that I write about the letting go of and the compassion needed to hold space for myself first does that relate to other places in my life besides perhaps my doula work or my writing work absolutely it does and I felt that the divorce that I went through played a role in how that book was birthed and like what is in that book even though I don't write about it directly so much it's a uh, it's it was the background music in the house. Hmm. I like that. You know, as I was writing. So there's definitely themes in there and feelings in there and hopes and hurts and reflections in there that relate to deeply personal parts of me. Ah, oh, that, that's really interesting because, you know, we, we tend to put grief in a very small box and we can have grief over change. We can have grief over something tragic happening that's doesn't end in end of life or death. I mean, or it could be symbolic of a death of a friendship that we're both living, we just outgrew each other. So I mean it, it's really interesting um that that can be applied to a lot of different things and not specifically just to end of life. And I that's what I love about it. So what what led you to become our a birth doula and then a hospital chaplain. It's like, it's really interesting how sometimes I feel like that's the beginning of life and the end of life. And so how did they bridge the gap of, of the life cycle for you? Again, that's a wonderful question. And part of it had to do with a class I was teaching at the time of, um, of doing the hospital chaplaincy training and doing the birth doula work. And it was a course called myth and ritual. And I taught it at the Lawrenceville School, which is a boarding school in New Jersey. And in that course, I I started the course, and these are high school students, junior, seniors, so like 16, 17, 18-year-old people loving that class. And I loved teaching. We read myths from all around the world and studied rituals um, that were connected to um, mythologies from around the world. And I organized it by theme. And the first three weeks of that class, we devoted to creation myths around birth and death. So I spent quite a few years, 11 years teaching this course, and I came to really be interested in these threshold points intellectually. Hmm. I was with my sister through the birth of her daughter, and the midwife at one point turned to me and said, you know, 
you'd be a really good doula. And, and I, my eyes suddenly filled with tears and I thought, okay, that's a sign for me to pursue, um, exploring what that might mean. And then I did, did that, do that for about 10 years where I was active involved in many births, dozens of births. And then I really wanted to balance that because I'm teaching this course, right? I'm myth and ritual and there's a lot about birth, but I had never at that point seen anyone die. Right. And most of us don't. That's the thing about birth, too. Most of us don't see anyone be born. We, we have siloed these things off. They used to happen in our communities, in our homes so much more frequently. And now they happen in institutions kind of uh, in different parts of town. And they happen to be experienced usually when people are in the midst of it themselves. So usually sometimes the women I helped with birth, the first birth they've ever seen or experienced with it was their own. And that's a strange model compared to. I should say first birth, you know, in lifetime, not on, not via film or media. Right. But that's a really different model than how our ancestors through human history had lived, where we saw birth and we saw death more frequently. And women helped each other, even from younger ages, you know, teen girls helping moms deliver or even children watching their mothers have babies. So I was drawn to explore these threshold points personally, not just intellectually. And I entered a chaplaincy training program at a hospital about 40 minutes from where I lived. And I did all of this while I was teaching philosophy and religion. So you know, I'm teaching high school philosophy and religion. That's my main, my main gig. And then, then I'm doing birth work and I'm doing death work. Birth work and death work. And these start weaving together the philosophy, the religion, the comparative study of how we make meaning to being with families who are Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Unitarian, Mormon, atheist, of all perspectives with them through birth and death. Hmm. Now, did you see a lot of similarities when it came to birth and death? I mean, were there were there similar experiences? Yes and no. I mean, I think it's easy to say that there's, I mean, for me, a, a birth and a death that, quote, went well. In other words, where there's not trauma, there's not a lot of family drama, there's, there's a sense of holiness or respect for these thresholds. They had a similar taste or feeling in my body for me. I felt like I was standing on the same kind of ground of this entrance and exit. So, and some of the skill sets in the doula work and the training to be a doula and the training to be a chaplain do overlap. And I'd love to, you know, continue to explore that. But there are also important differences. And when birth goes wrong or when death goes wrong or when it's a suicide or a murder, and I was at a level one trauma hospital in New Jersey and I saw things come into that trauma room that were very hard, right? So those things, are, I would say that there's unique skill sets for birth workers and death workers, too. So I don't like to say they're exactly the same. I don't think they are. But I think the overlap is significant enough that we could learn a lot. Like uh, birth workers who spend time with those who work with the dying could learn a lot. And the dying, people who work with the dying could learn a lot, too, from spending time with midwives and birth doulas. Oh, I like that. I think that's a great point. And, you know, I've learned that sometimes those who are working in the death kind of world, I'll, I'll leave it at that, tend to go and balance that with watching babies being born or going to the nursery to see that life is truly a cycle. Um, and and maybe, I don't know if birth doulas do the same thing, um, but it is something to see at the end of life that do, life does go on and, and birth is there. Um, but you know what really is in the forefront of my mind is how do people who are at this hospice chaplain, death doula, birth doula, how do they take care of themselves through some of this tragedy or some of the celebration, um, but mostly 
it it's looking at how can you cope with these tragedies that you witness firsthand at work? It's it's how do you deal with that? How do you take care of yourself? This is key. I think this is key for all of us involved in work that involves uh, being present for people's shadows and sorrows and and even you know teaching school. And students would come to me with their struggles and hopes and fears. And then there's, you know, the, the fact that I show up every day and I'm in a classroom with people. I mean, there, I think that there's a lot of output, you know, it's a lot of energy output and that's wonderful. And we, your question is how do I make sure I nourish, how do we all who are involved in caretaking roles, make sure we nourish ourselves, even as mothers, even as fathers, you know, if we're home with our little ones a lot and we spend a lot of time with little ones, Right, giving a lot of um, holding space a lot for all the energies of a four-year-old or six-year-old. How do we then nourish mom or dad later? So I do some really reflection. I do a lot of reflection on this in the trainings I offer. So I offer trainings for those involved in um, birth work to prepare for stillbirth, miscarriage, infant loss. And in those trainings, a significant piece is self-care. A significant piece because it is very painful to come home after having watched families go through really an emotionally devastating, difficult, like beyond belief, difficult experience. You know, when a baby dies, especially if it's unanticipated, it is it is one of the things that will rock their life forever, change their lives forever. And it's a trauma that can impact everyone in the room. So how do I come home then? And restore, and, and I, what I try to see it as, I, how do I integrate that experience? Because it's not about um, cutting that part off of, of my life and saying, okay, that's work and this is home. Never the two shall meet. It's more about embracing all these parts of me and saying, okay, now they're a part. They, I bring them all to the table of Amy. And then how do I keep that table healthy? <laughs> how do I make sure that there's wholesome food on the table, that all parts of me are being nourished? And, and for me, a big piece has to do with moving my body so I do kickboxing, I do yoga, I love to dance. And, and when I used to come home from the hospital and have in my mind the, the visual images or the smells, the memory of smells that were really intense, like being with a family through the suicide of a child, for instance, I would come home, a quiet drive home, quiet commute home, and then eventually at some point be ready to move, put on music, the only one there, you know, draw the shades, and just dance, even for an hour or two, and just see it over and over in my mind what I had just lived through and move it through me. So I bring it home, I bring it in, but I don't have it like a heavy backpack on my back. It now becomes a part of my story, but it's not the only part of my story. There's also and breath. And, and so I welcome, I try to be, I try to be as um, integrated as I can by welcoming all the parts to the same table. Well, I knew you were compassionate. You have a huge heart. I didn't realize you were a badass in like kickboxing. I mean, <laughs> I will, I will make sure I make a note not never to mess with you. <laughs> That's awesome because you've got to have some way to deal with what you're going through. It's healthy aggression. It's a, a way to handle healthy aggression. And I have my son watch me. He'll come to class sometimes and watch me, and I'll say to him, you know. Watch me, watch me do this movement because I'm not hitting the man in the face. Like I don't go in there to hurt anyone. I go in there to move my body and to let anger, not to be afraid of anger, to let anger, a healthy expression of anger, move my arms and legs as it doesn't hurt anyone, but it helps it move. Because I want my son to have that as a model as he works with his own anger energies. 
that it's a it's about allowing the energies to flow and not not intentionally attacking right i teach them to be a jedi the jedis use the force for knowledge and defense never for attack that's awesome <laughs> especially <laughs> now you know this new star wars movie's coming out solo i can't wait to watch it but that's a you know you can learn a lot from you know that series when it comes to you know, just relating spiritually and energy and, and things along that line. And I also feel like we as people sometimes don't let some aggression, positive ways to allow aggression or anger out. And we tend to numb out to the positive things that life could bring. And and just like Benet Brown says, you know, when you numb out joy or, you know, heartache and anger, you're numbing out joy and and love too. You can't selectively choose what emotion to to numb out. You got to either numb them out all or embrace them all. And that that's a really good point about how to deal with with even grief because there's a stage within grief called anger. Um, I like that. I really do. But you know, us in the industry, we we start using these language um, that could be misinterpreted or not. Um, understandable from the, the the everyday person walking down the street. And, you know, birth doula, I don't, I think people know a little bit about that, but now we're throwing around, you know, death doulas, death medwives. What, what is the difference? And is it, is there some kind of bridge between the two and what does a birth doula do versus a death doula? Mm, such a great question. Okay. So this is how I understand it, my friend. So doula is a a term from the Greek language that means woman servant. Traditionally, it was was kind of like a woman slave who specifically helped other women, like high class women, have babies. That's the original use of the term. And then it became transferred into you know contemporary society uh, with the modern birth doula movement in the U.S. Maybe 25 so years ago as a support, emotional, mental, spiritual support in labor delivery, not medical support, not delivering the baby, not helping the mother with vaginal exams or medicine, but really offering emotional, physical, mental support, spiritual support for labor and birth. And the man who, who a good friend of mine who helped found Inelda, the International End of Life Doula Association, Henry Fersco Weiss, served for many years as a hospice social worker working with the dying and felt in his system, his experience in New York, New Jersey, that something was missing in that model of care and felt drawn to go study with Deborah uh, Pascali Bonero, who's a birth doula trainer, to study the birth doula model and see if there was something in that birth doula model that could transfer into hospice work. And, and he found there was. Now, he didn't take everything and it wasn't, again, like an exact replica but he took enough from the birth doula model to use the word doula and say, I'd like to start training people in end-of-life doula or death doula work. And I think that that what he did, and, and so this is the thing, um, he's, he represents one strand of that tradition, that's mod, that, that modern tradition of end-of-life doula or death doula. And there's other people also doing trainings with their own flavor, and there's no overarching body of standards. So if you, I'm a yoga teacher and there's something called Yoga Alliance. It's a large overarching body. And so there's hundreds of yoga studios, many thousands in the United States, and there's yoga schools. And if they want to be Yoga Alliance certified, 
they need to submit their curriculum to Yoga Alliance and say, yes, we meet your standards and we can use your name. It's like a stamp of approval. There's nothing like that in the birth or death doula world. There's just a lot of organizations training people and giving certificates and saying, you are now certified in our model of care. And some, I think, are um, are really compatible with others and some are very different from others. So I have chosen to certify myself through DONA, which is the largest birth doula organization, but it's certainly not the only one. And it's a certain flavor in birth doula work, but there's other flavors too. There's other models of training. So what what we use in terms of our our distinctions, the language used, do people want to call themselves death doulas or does end of life sound a little more palatable for the average American, right? That's really, they're the same in my opinion. You know, uh, Henry uses them both, but he tend, he called his organization end of life doula, perhaps because it's more palatable. I don't know. He didn't call it death doula. Other people use death midwifery, but it's, it's not as if they're actually, I don't, as far as I know, doing the actual medical piece. Like a midwife is trained to do medical work, right? It's a medical training that involves a certain approach to care, but it's, they can give medicine, they, they can do vaginal exams, they can do suturing, they can stitch the vagina if there's a tear. I don't believe death midwives do anything that's related to the medical care of the dying, as far as I know. But it's a term that midwife to be with, to be with women is the term originally, it's a term to say, I'm going to be with you through this experience, similar to, I think, more of a doula model. So when you ask me what these terms all mean, it kind of it becomes like alphabet soup. I, mm. I believe that until we have an overarching, and if there is ever an overarching body, like a doula association that says these are the standards in general that those schools should have if they want our certificate, if we ever mo- modeled ourselves after the yoga community in that way, then we might find a, a more... Um, consistent use of term not terminology but until then we have so many people I mean you and I could start tomorrow Kimberly you and I could decide let's form an organization let's train people we'll call it this we give these certificates and we name it this and nothing stops us from doing that interesting one thing Henry shared with me I like this idea he said because the word doula has been used by the birth doula community for the last 20 something years in the United States, it's become more well known. And because of that, he believes that the death doula model of care won't take as long to become as well known because the word doula is already in the lexicon in some sense. But even that, think about this, only 6% of American women deliver their babies with birth doulas. It's a very small number. It compared to what it could be, it could be 30% or 40, maybe one day 80. But it's less than 10% of American women have birth doulas and their birth. And it's much, much smaller in terms of people who hire or have a doula model of care as they die. Well, so basically these doulas, whether it's birth or death, or or people who have gone through situations and have seen many things when it comes to birth and death. So they're basically there saying, hey, this is normal. This is this is what we have to do. Um, this is the next steps. And that can be applied to birth and death. But that's basically what they're doing to reassure and be with the individual experience as well as the caregivers and the loved ones around the individual experience in it. Correct? Yes, I think to some extent, but it's not it's not only the doula that's making the shot of what's normal. I think what I mean, there's the medical piece, at least, at least with birth, where if there is something going wrong, you'd want trained professionals to keep an eye on the heart rate, right? And to keep an eye on the 
But when it comes to um, what I see as doula work is really knowing, having a skill set, like a comfort measure skill set, having in your toolbox maybe seven or eight different proven comfort measures that generally work for birth or generally work for death. And then also this meaning making piece, which is like helping people make sense of the experience, right? Because suffering, I think, is different than pain. Pain is a physical thing, but suffering involves the mind and how we interpret our pain. So I think doulas help people make sense of their stories, whether they have a hard hard death, they help the family begin to make meaning, in my experience at least. That's one of the most important roles. A doula can help a mom process a birth that wasn't necessarily what she had hoped for or or she's there by the side no matter what happens. It's like, I'm going to stick with you no matter what happens here. And I have a skill set, and I've walked this road with many women before. But my job is to focus on what your hopes and fears are and to help you navigate this with as little suffering as possible. Like, Adula can't stop the pain necessarily, but she can help mitigate suffering. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, and and you really help explain. Now, I know Henry... Uh, he he was on my first season of the podcast. I, I'm. It's really interesting how you say that this whole death doula movement has been around for 20 years and it's just now getting traction and you're seeing it more often in the news and people are talking about it and NHPCO is doing something about it. But it's been around a long time. And birth doula work, I think, pioneered a lot of the, the use of the term doula. Still, there are many people who don't know what it means. And even, you know... Recently, I received an email from a close friend who I would think would know. And she's like, what, Amy, what exactly is the difference between a midwife and a doula? And, and the key piece is the medical training. Doulas are not licensed by any stretch to offer medical advice or to, to um, provide medical care. You know, that's not my role. My role, if, if, a, if a family's feeling pressured into a medical procedure they don't want, and remind the family they have the rights medically to say to the nursing staff or doctors, I need space to think about it. I want time to think about it, right? And then they can process. A doula can help people remember their rights, but I'm not there to say um, this happen now in your birth. Wow. That, it, 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 and that's the thing is sometimes it's confusing for us living and working in the industry. And so for the common person, it's extra confusing. Um, so it's great to get clarification on the the ins and outs of, of what these uh, titles and these, um, I guess, forms of being with individuals actually are. Now, you founded the Institute of for the study of birth, breath, and death. Now talk to me a little bit about this and what is its purpose? Thank you for asking. And I want to say anyone listening to this who's involved in this work who would like to add to this conversation or want to clarify a point may disagree with me or really like what I said, email me and let me know because I love these conversations. And that is why I formed the Institute because I, I was invited to speak at the Midwives Alliance of North America conference a few years ago in St. Louis at their annual conference. And I, wanted to present on what can learn from those of us who work with the dying. That was my, and so I spent some good time with midwives in that in that group talking about my training as a chaplain and what we can learn as we transfer some of those skill sets into birth. Um, and so that was such an inspiring conversation. I really wanted to create an institute that could meet in person, that can also offer online opportunities 
where people involved in birth and death can talk to each other. Oh, I love it. That's my goal is to lift that up because I think there's enough of an overlap. I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but there's enough of an overlap that their conversations are very fruitful. And the breath piece would be people involved in mindful living's pursuits, like perhaps Tai Chi or yoga or meditation teachers or those involved in spiritual life in different religious traditions, the breath of living. What does it mean to live well? So to bring birth, breath, and death together in one institute, you know, I have a hundred or so members and these individuals connect via online or in person or with me. And they start to have these really interesting, amazing conversations where birth and death intersect and where, where um, I think there's so much to say about what we can learn from life when we bring people who hold space for those sacred thresholds together. I love it. I absolutely love it. Because there's always, I mean, I feel like I'm a student of life. There's, you, you either sometimes find yourself as the teacher or you are being taught something from someone else. And to bring these two groups together, I think there is so much to learn from both sides um, that could be applied or have, you know, no relevance at all, but yet to be aware that there is a, a place where we do deal with loss in both birth and death, but also there is life also in birth and death um, for families. And and so I, I just love that you've created this platform to for that open conversation. Now, you with your work with hospice, being a hospice, not a, a hospice chaplain, but a hospital chaplain, you know, you work with a lot of grief, correct? Yes. So how do you suggest, I mean, this is, grief is becoming this this hot topic to talk about and how to do it and how not to do it. And, you know, recently I just heard someone say, well, I grieve badly. And I'm like, who told you that? <laughs> I mean, who told you that you grieved badly? And is that your own personal um, thoughts on the matter? Um, and I, so I feel like this whole grief and loss is so fragile um, that people are really guiding other people through this. This is how you're supposed to do it. In my opinion, there is no wrong way to grieve. But I wanted to ask you with all your experience, how do you suggest well-meaning friends approach someone who is dealing with loss or grief? Because that is such an, a question that I keep coming, um, I mean, being asked almost every day. Mm -hmm. Of course. No one wants to say the wrong thing, right? And, and no one wants to cause more suffering. And so ten, people tend to be quiet and then that silence or the distance, and that can feel very alienating and sad or scary for the one who is mourning. So how to be present without overwhelming that person with you know, well-meaning cliches that feel hurtful and at the same time um, not back up so far that they think you don't love them or you're not there. Right. So I, I, oh boy, that's a big question. It really depends on the context of each relationship. But for me, when I know a friend or family member is in trouble, or if there's been a death, I really try to first say, I'm thinking about you, I'm here for you, I love you, and then try to do something practical. Because in the, at least in the early stages of, of grief, like those early few days or months, it's, it's a shock to the body, it's a physiological experience. I think of grief as very physical. It's a physiological experience, a sense almost of an emergency. 
that the body is in a shock, like, wow, that human being I once loved is gone. And especially true for mothers just after giving birth and Mm. their whole body wants to connect. Like the oxytocin is at the highest level it will ever be in their life, in their brain, that bonding hormone, and then the baby's dead. You know, and breast milk is coming in soon. And I mean, it is a shock to the human body. And so what we know about trauma and shock is that what, what helps the brain begin to make sense of it somewhat is to offer physical, practical comfort, wrapping the body and, you know, the, the person who's grieving, you know, with a blanket or rubbing the feet or brushing the hair or massaging gently the hand. That's going to mean a whole lot more physiologically to how that human being will eventually process that trauma than a lot of well-meaning words, I think. So, so for me, if I'm in the situation as a hospital chaplain, it's like emotional triage, those early like moments of shock, you know, you just find out your brother was in a car accident and you're getting called to the hospital and I'm there as a, as a support, but the brother's, you know, dying, you know, that sister or sibling is in physical shock. So I, Try to think, okay, how can I get some water? How can I sit near them enough they know that someone's there? Can I offer to hold a hand? Some of my most moving experiences as a chaplain had nothing to do with words and everything to do with presence. Like showing up. Yeah. And and just being there. Yeah. Wow. That's, you know, presence and it, it, it says so much with no words at all. Right. It really does. And I think that, that just showing up is is should be rated the number one thing, but it's so like for me, um, showing up for a neighbor who lost someone, it's so on the back burner. You don't want to impose yourself. You don't want to over, you know, be interrupting something, but really it's, it's really a way to, to just be, um, and just to say that you're here. And I love that. I love that. So what do you hope your readers learn from your book, Holding Space? I try to be pretty vulnerable in it so that no one thinks I'm perfect by a long shot. <laughs> so I hope And you come up, I mean, it's so true because <laughs> you really, you really are exposing and being vulnerable in this book. And that's what I love about you is, is that you, you really come from a perspective that you're not, you're not the end all be all. You're not the perfectionist here that you've learned many things by making the mistakes. Right. So I hope they learn the author is a companion to them. You know, like can, I can walk alongside. That book can be alongside a person through a hard journey. And when I get emails from, pe- emails from people who've read it, it seems that that's often the sense. Like I felt like you were on my, like next to me, aside. Like the words become a friendly companion or a, a warm, a gentle. I think what I hope people feel is that there's a gentle love that can come from that book that will sustain them in their darkest nights. I hope that would be my hope. And it's not because I'm a teacher giving something from something, you know, handing something down at all. It's because I've walked those hard nights and I, and I feel like those words came through some hard nights and I hope they can lift a few spirits or at least wrap a a cocoon of a warm blanket around a mom who's just lost her baby and, and just say, you know, I, I see you. I see this. Oh, wow. So, I mean, holding space is such a gift to the world. How do people find this book? Where do they find it? Hmm. Well, it's published by Parallax Press. And that's a company out in San Francisco, founded by Thich Nhat Hanh. And 
and I love his work. So when they approached me to write this book, I was really, really moved. I felt very grateful. Um, and I hadn't sought out a publisher for my second book, but they approached me and, and I love Thich Nhat Hanh's work. So I, you could order it through Parallax directly, but it's also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and in various bookstores. So there's a wide range of ways one could order it. I teach courses online and I often require it as part of the reading for the courses I teach. So if one wanted to go deeper into the book, you could sign up for courses with me. And, and I often have scholarship rates for different organizations that do work for underserved communities, whether incarcerated or um, low-income or indigenous communities that are dealing with birth and death and want to have what and the the people the doulas of those communities may not have the funds to pay for lots of training but so I do have scholarship available too so I try I'm trying to create a space in my life for people to know about the book and to connect to me and I'm going to Amsterdam in September I just was a keynote speaker in Vancouver for a birth and death doula conference so there are people drawn to it and I'm grateful but like I said I wrote it because I want to stand side by side. I want to, I want it to be a gift of a companion. You know, that's how I see it. I love that explanation. I really do. Now, if people are interested in learning more about your courses or workshops, where do they find you? So the website uh, that I created is birthbreathanddeath.com. Birthbreathanddeath.com. You could also look at my name, Amy Wright Glenn. Uh, I write for an organization called Philly Voice. So I freelance for them. I write one or two times a month for them, and and I also have a pretty active Facebook uh, page for the Institute itself, and then also for my writing, Amy Wright Glenn, and the Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Death. Oh, I love it. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time today. I, I feel like you're a gift to me. And I know we were connected via our friends in Asheville, but I tell you what, I, I feel very, very fortunate to have you in my life. And I'm so looking forward to the many things that you and I are going to be doing in the future and, and how I can pro promote you and your work and your talent, man, your talent. So I'm so grateful that you are breathing and living and changing the way people view birth and death as you move forward in, in your life. Kimberly, thank you. Oh, I feel so humbled by that and excited to, to, to spend time with you as we move forward in our own endeavors. So and thank you again for inviting me. I hope all of you who listened feel like I could uh, be contacted easily and you can reach out if any of this inspired you or you have ideas or questions you want to share please do so. And I'll add your website um, along with some of your contact information to the bottom of this podcast. Um, so if you want to get in touch with Amy, she's really accessible. And I really, really encourage you to do that. Amy, thank you so much. I know you're a busy gal out in this world. So thank you for your time and taking time out to spend with the listeners of Death by Design podcast. Thank you, Kimberly. All the best to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, and remember, you're the designer.